I think what's helpful in this context is to be honest with your users and from the start define what the scope of the open source project is and then don't hold back within that scope. This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. I'm excited to have Thomas Graff on the show with us today. Thomas is one of the co-creators for Cilium. Thomas, why don't we start by having you tell us what Cilium is? I, I wanted to offer an explanation. I was going to say it has something to do with the new eBPF observability layer of Linux, but I think you would be more precise than I. Sure. Uh, first of all, hi, Eric. Thanks for having me on your podcast. My name is Thomas. I'm one of the co-founders of the Cilium project. What is Cilium? Um, Cilium is quite easily network security for the cloud-native age, for cloud-native secure, for cloud-native clusters, Kubernetes, using eBPF. So it brings the power of eBPF to Kubernetes and the cloud-native world. Awesome. And what we want to get into today is, is how this project came to be. I noticed that you've been doing Linux networking forever. I mean, not ever, but <laughs> for quite a while. Yeah, absolutely. I joined Red Hat over 15 years ago, and I was a kernel developer for about 10 years. And I've what I noticed is that I've, I've, I've been working on these kernel technologies for like a long time. And then what I often notice is that 10 years later, these pieces of the code that I would write would then be used in projects like OpenShift. Right? I, was, I was at Red Hat during the early days of OpenShift. And what I noticed, the pattern that I noticed is that these technologies get used way later, 10 years later, because it takes such a long time for kernel technologies to become available to the user. Um, and that was kind of the starting point of Cilium. That was the starting point of, um, can we do better than that? Can we stop uh, writing uh, kernel code at one point in time and then 10 years later use that for some new layers, for example, um, networking or, or something else? Because at that point, Obviously, that piece of technology is very outdated, right? It has not been designed for that age. And that was the starting point of Cilium. Like, can we use eBPF to do something groundbreaking new and leverage the true power of it to create something that is truly cloud native? Got it. So I guess the history of Cilium, I suppose, could start with your work and networking in Linux from a long time ago. And also maybe with the emergence of eBPF. I imagine eBPF came first and then Cilium. Is that fair? Absolutely. I think eBPF as an idea goes all the way back to the foundations of the overall internet. Right? It was the same people inventing internet very early as of, of Unix where BPF was actually created. And um the idea of having programmable package fillers, which is really the foundation of VPF, is very, very old. It's actually older than I am. eBPF is kind of a next generation form of that. And yes, eBPF has been there before Solium. When we started thinking about Solium, uh, we have specifically extended eBPF further to extend some of its capabilities, in particular in the visibility area and also in the networking area. And then based on that foundation, built Solium. So I think it's fair to say that clearly Solium does not exist without eBPF, but it's also fair to say that a lot of the recent developments of eBPF have happened because of Solium as well. So it's going both ways. Ah, I just want to clarify that point you made at the beginning. I think you were saying that there's a bunch of uh, networking tech that you and others wanted to push into people's Linux deployments, but it would take a long time, years for them to get through. I don't know what are you saying, get through approvals or just to get baked into the kernel and then for people to pick up into their 
applications. And you're saying by creating eBPF, you can make changes sooner that impact users quicker. Exactly. That's that's the at the core level, that's what eBPF unlocks. Prior to eBPF, you had two choices. Either you went all the way to change the Linux kernel source code, uh, convince Linux and others that your change is important enough that it would make its way into the Linux kernel. And then once that is actually in there, wait many years until that Linux kernel version is used by your users and your customers, which is many, many, many years. Like a kernel is not something that you update all the time, right? It's something that is uh, supposed to be very stable, so you're not updating this very frequently. Then your second option has always been Linux kernel modules, which is a way to dynamically load additional kernel code. That's very risky, though. A insecure or a uh, malicious kernel module can easily crash your kernel. So many users, many customers are not willing to load arbitrary kernel modules. And BPF strikes that perfect balance. It allows to dynamically extend the Linux kernel, but in a completely secure manner because eBPF programs are verified and the kernel will recheck programs which are not safe to run. And this is this perfect striking balance. It gives the flexibility, it gives the the, um, dynamic extension capability while being secure, very similar to containers. eBPF programs run in a sandboxed environment. And this powerful combination unlocks a completely new set of tooling and Cilium is one example here. Very good. So eBPF came about and how soon did you realize that the Cilium project was was something you wanted to do or something of value that needed to be pursued? I think it, it, the, the moment came when containers started to really kick off. I, um, I was around for the entire uh, virtualization age and with, with virtualization also the networking aspect of that SDN and the programmability that SDN brought was really interesting. I moved a lot of functionality that existed in networking hardware before onto Linux servers. When containers came around and it became clear that containers will change how we deploy applications forever, it also became obvious that what we saw with SDN, what we saw with projects like Open vSwitch, that's only the starting point. Right? That's is a great step or a giant leap forward compared to networking hardware, but it's actually a micro step if you look at what's actually possible with pure software. And that was the starting point of Cilium. That's when we basically sat in a room and asked ourselves, if we have all the powers of eBPF, how would we do container networking? How would we do container network security? How would we do it if we have all of this power? And that was the first commit of Cilium. And take me to that day. Uh, who are you working with? You mentioned co-creator. And how did you come to know each other? Yeah, so I'm... Um, um, I was was a group of four people uh, almost five years ago. Um, back then, we were working at Cisco. We were trying to figure out what is the next thing. And eBPF, we clearly knew that uh, we wanted to do something with eBPF. The people that have been working with me mostly have worked with me before uh, Cisco as well. So uh, being good friends. And that's where we where we sat together and, and, and figured out what to do. And after about two days, the core concepts of Cilium have been clear and we, and we started writing the code. And, you know, after a decade in the Linux kind of open source project and, and code base, I imagine it was kind of exciting or, or maybe even odd to be on your own, having your own governance. Yeah, the, the change was not quite as abrupt as it might appear. In the beginning, we spent probably half the time, half of our energy actually extending the eBPF runtime further. So we actually continued to spend a lot of time inside of the Linux kernel to extend it further. And then as the capabilities of the eBPF runtime grew, more and more of our efforts shifted over 
and psyllium became, became public. Uh, there was more and more interest around psyllium and that also drew more and more attention, our attention to psyllium and the users of um, psyllium. And these days, we're still doing a lot of kernel development. We're still moving the eBPF runtime forward as well. So it's not like we have completely lost that side, but more and more, we can just leverage the power of the eBPF runtime. So how do you find your, I imagine at some point you're trying to find your first kind of users of, mm-hmm. of Cilium and eBPF, and there's a, maybe some evangelism required. Yeah. How do you find these people? That's an interesting point. So we, we went into a very extreme direction in the beginning. We basically sat down and said, how would the most forwarding looking container environment look like? IPv6 only, massive scale, very tight security, least privilege everywhere. And we sat down, did a initial kind of slide deck around that and did the minimal work required to get Cilium there, to have a proof of concept, and then went to conferences and started talking about it. And very quickly, we got feedback. Like, oh, this is amazing. This is the future. Uh, let me be part of this. And this is how we got the first contributors. And in fact, that's been like almost five years ago. And if we look at how people deploy clusters today, it's exactly like this. Like this is exactly how the modern container environments look like. Like we're, we're seeing users breaking the boundaries out of IPv4 and going into IPv6. We're seeing security constraints getting tighter and tighter and so on. So a lot of what we have done on the whiteboard back then has been rendered accurate, not all of it, but that's, I think, one of the best ways to get traction around an open source project is to go quite extreme, paint the future, prove that you can do it and get feedback based on that. Yeah, you know, you talk like this has been features you've wanted to put in Linux for for a long time and that this project is five years old, but it, in some ways it feels like this is all very new. I mean, I don't think people were talking about EPF at conferences, it feels like, until just a couple of years ago. Notably, Netflix seems like they, Brandon, I think is his name is, at Netflix has done quite a good job of getting people excited about EPF. Is that fair or is or have I just kind of missed the boat and, and there was a lot of talk about this before? No, absolutely not. I think there's always multiple stages, right? You have like very, very early stages where a handful of people see the true power of something. And and, and there's probably a lot of forward thinking involved at that point to can kind of imagine what's possible. And we clearly saw it at that point. And then there is a next phase. And I think in that second phase, we saw companies like Facebook, Netflix, Cloudflare to really leverage eBPF for their own usage. Like you would be surprised for how long Facebook has been using eBPF in production for pretty much all network traffic in and out of their data centers or how for how long Cloudflare has been using eBPF for traffic management and for DDoS mitigation and so on. From a wider usage of users with very concrete and high requirements, eBPF is actually in use for several years, like three, four, five years. Now in the most recent years, eBPF is getting really mainstream, right? We're seeing even more common use cases, maybe not like the extreme scale use cases, maybe not millions of packets per second. We see those use cases uh, leverage eBPF as well. For example, the fantastic visibility that eBPF gives you or the fantastic network security properties and so on. So we're moving from this extreme use cases, Facebook, Google, Netflix, Cloudflare, and so on. And we're we're getting more and more, more and more mainstream. You know, this is something you've been the principles behind this you've believed in for a long time. And it sounds like everybody's kind of moving in this direction. Have you been surprised by anything as EPPF and Cilium have gone mainstream? 
use cases you didn't consider or situations in which you've had to kind of adjust your expectations of how people will adopt this? I think absolutely. With, with almost everything, I think most often we are overestimating how quickly something new gets adopted. So I think initially there was definitely a time where it's like, oh, why is this not catching on quicker? Like, why is not everybody jumping on board? And, and now we're in a, in, a, in a phase where it's like, we can't get enough validation. Like Google recently announced uh, putting eBPF and Solium into GKE and Antos as, as their entire data plane. So we eventually got there, but it definitely, like, obviously can never be fast enough, but then it always also takes longer than you kind of hope. At the same time, we haven't really fundamentally changed anything that we're doing. We definitely went took one step back, but that was definitely expected, right? In the beginning, we were IPv6 only and like very extreme focus points. And then obviously we took it back a little bit, but that was always planned. So we didn't fundamentally change anything and we didn't change any big decisions. Some external factors uh, played a role. For example, when we started Cilium, Kubernetes was not really mainstream yet. Docker was dominant. So Docker was also our primary kind of use case. And then with the shift from Docker to Kubernetes, Cilium had to um, adjust to that as well. And how have the kind of contributor base evolved? I think at the beginning, you said there were four of you, uh, several at Cisco. Are those still kind of the four core contributors today? Most of them are actually still contributors, but um, we obviously expanded heavily. About one year into the Cilium project, we actually founded a company around it, Isovalent. Several employees obviously became contributor, and then more and more customers and users started to contribute as well. And these days, we're, I think, just above 200 people who have contributed to uh, Amcelium. Some of them very regularly, cloud provider users, uh, large, large users. These days, it's very common or it's, it's normal for a Cilium release to receive uh, more than a third of the, of the new features from non-core contributors, for example. Which is quite impressive. I think a lot of open source is just single developer with a lot of people filing bugs and requesting features. That's exciting. It definitely takes a lot of hard work like, to build up an open source project that is healthy. Um, that doesn't just happen. It also takes, it takes a lot of dedication, takes a lot of hard work and a bit of luck as well. And a lot of early investors or kind of a lot of early um, investment into users and contributors that give, provide feedback. We're very fortunate that we have a healthy user base and a healthy um, contributor base who is, first of all, signaling us into the right direction. Like, this is good. This is bad. This is what we want. This is what we don't want. And also people who are very passionate about it and put a lot of energy and hours in, into Solium, whether it's code, testing, documentation, getting started guides, all of that plays a huge role into making an open source project successful. Any launch milestones? Was there like a, a certain day in which you felt like you launched Cilium or, or a certain version in which there was a lot of preparation to show it to the world? It's, it sounds like it was more organic kind of growth over time. Absolutely. So we were actually more traditional. Like I think in more recent years, it's more common that like open source projects get developed in private and then there's this big launch day and you kind of open source it. And then even some open source projects will start counting from that day on. I think Kubernetes is a good example of this. It was almost production ready when it was open sourced. We open sourced from day one. Like the first commit we did to Cilium was public. Like from the very beginning, it was public. So we had a very organic growth. We had several, I think, extremely good moments for the project. We had a, a big DockerCon talk early on that was very helpful that definitely showcased Cilium around KubeCon has always been fantastic for us. Lots of users, lots of great feedback. And then more recently, the Google announcement. So there's definitely milestones where 
the project is being brought forward in like and making a big big leap but the actual growth of the overall community has always been organic is it ever tricky it sounds like you were kind of co-developing or extending ebpf at the same time you're doing cilium and was it always clear where a certain feature would go or or is that you know were there ever debates about what goes in ebpf and what goes in cilium now there's always debates and i think at the same time the big advantage of ebpf is it is very general purpose, right? eBPF is not networking specific. It's being used for application profiling, tracing, uh, visibility, security LSMs, container runtime, syscall filtering. Um, so improving the eBPF runtime is similar to improving a programming language, right? It will benefit everybody, right? Which means there is less discussion around what should go in and what should not go in. So all the, the discussion on term, in terms of use cases and what we should do and not do, all of that has been more on the Cilium side versus the eBPF side, where, where obviously we had a lot more control. So we could put something in, ask users to run it, get feedback on that. So that's been extremely helpful that we depended a lot less to convince a larger set of um, contributors uh, inside of the Linux kernel to convince them uh, to think along the same way as we do. That, that has definitely helped unlock a completely new feature velocity that does not depend on finding open source consensus all of the time. That's helpful. And maybe the same for isovalent and Cilium. I, I mean, I don't know how the isovalent product works. Are there also debates about what goes into kind of isovalent versus Cilium code base? Is that I think it's a good question, and I think it's a, it's almost a philosophical question. Right? It gets back to open source. How do you commercialize, monetize open source? I think what's helpful in this context is to be honest with your users and from the start define what the scope of the open source project is and then don't hold back within that scope. And from that perspective, we always said from the beginning, and this is still very true today, that Solium is completely open source. So it, it covers networking, network security, load balancing, and all of that is open source. Like you can consume it fully. It's complete. We're not holding back scale or a particular feature or something like that. You can make a bet on Cilium using it in an open source concept or context, and it is complete. We won't all of a sudden not maybe open source a feature in that particular context. So you can be successful. And then Isovalent as a company offers additional SecOps tools on top of that, which from a use case perspective are quite different than what Solim offers. And I think this clear split allows the open source project to stay healthy and to not cause any conflicts between people interested in Solim, people contributing to Solim to all of a sudden think, oh, Isovalent is making money off this. Maybe I should stop contributing. So this this split, this separation of, of use cases is, is very essential. And you will find and see that other open source projects who are successful at this as well, at monetizing it while keeping the open source project very healthy are doing it in exactly the same way. Very good. And then in my research before the show, I saw Hubble. Is Hubble part of Cilium or kind of a sister project that is kind of baked in? It is. It's not baked in, but it's kind of a sister project. So Solim uh, is networking, network security, and load balancing. Um, Hubble is the observability side of it. So Hubble takes network observability, metrics, flow logs, service dependency graphs, all of that to the next level with the powers of eBPF. So it's the same metric below, and, and Hubble uh, requires Solim to run, but Hubble has like a very concrete focus on observability. So it's it's not a what's called a CNI. It's a it's a observability tool on top. It has a UI aspect. It has 
APIs to get flow logs and so on. So it's it's an extension on top of Solium. It's an it's an independent open source project, and from from that perspective, but it it does leverage eBPF and, and and uses the same foundational technology. Maybe you could talk about the state of the project today, and and we can kind of shift gears to what you know plans are for the future. Yeah. So. Well, I think we're in, in, a, in a very interesting spot right now that we're seeing a rapid increase in production usage of, of Solium. Like we obviously had large-scale users for multiple years, but in the beginning, most of the Solium users had specific reasons to, to use Solium, and it was usually around scalability or some extremer use cases. In the last couple of months, we saw a very short tick upwards in uh, more mainstream users, like just like, oh, Solium is awesome, eBPF is awesome, I'm, I'm just going to use this for networking, even though maybe there is not a, a massive scale requirement or there is not a massive um, security requirement. So we're seeing incredibly steep adoption rate, which is fantastic for us. We're seeing our Slack channel uh, explode. I think all of that is awesome. We see cloud providers starting to use us, put us in. We're having interesting conversation with everybody. Definitely very, very exciting. Like overall, it's still early days, I think, for um, Kubernetes in general, but it's definitely exciting. The next couple of years will be very exciting. We're getting drawn and pulled into various directions and we get to choose what we want to focus on. As you look back on that that period in which you were kind of ahead of your time, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but you knew that this is where the market was headed, but it wasn't maybe moving as fast as you would have hoped or expected. What kept you kind of believing and working and you know, I guess I'm mostly looking at how would you advise other open source founders who are finding themselves in a similar boat? Yeah, I think I would I would split a bit the, the technology side and the co-founder side of a, a company. Like from a technology side, there was never any concern that from a technology perspective, this is going to happen. There was never any doubt. Like it's not always quite clear when when the actual urgency happens on a on a wider mainstream side that a particular technology gets adopted very, very widely. But there was never any doubt that eBPF and Cilium will eventually take over more and more use cases and become very dominant. And then there's the co-founder side where you're much more exposed to market readiness. Is actually anybody buying what you're building and so on, which is which is obviously very different. There's a, a totally different timeline attached to that and a lot more like a very different pressure points. In general, like what I'm always telling myself is listen to your gut, in particular if you have a track record that is more or less right. Just because something doesn't just happen right away doesn't mean that your gut is completely off. Um, and that's, that usually leads to a, a good long-term thinking as well. At, at least that's working for me. Yeah, totally. And what should we be looking forward to or what do you look forward to with the project in the coming year? Uh, yeah, so it's it's very exciting. I think um, eBPF will, as a technology, will get get used wider and wider. I think we are taking on more and more use cases for Solium. I think the biggest step that we're making with the next release is to expand outside of Kubernetes. So far, we have have very specifically focused on Kubernetes users and clusters. And with the next release, we are allowing to integrate virtual machines, bare metal machines, and so on. So we're expanding into what we would call legacy, even though VMs are obviously not legacy at all. But from our very forward-looking perspective, we're uh, starting to cover more and more of this more traditional legacy market. And I think even more important, multi-cloud, hybrid cloud, edge clusters, very interesting for us. We have extremely promising um, technologies for these new use cases that come up with providing 
clusters close to the user to provide better latency and then somehow connect those edge clusters together. All of those use cases is what we have built into our foundational um, tech from the very beginning. And we're now seeing like kind of demand for what we have built and it's a matter of just connecting our tech with those use cases. So that's definitely two major areas that we will continue to invest in. It's uh, super exciting, absolutely. Maybe to help us all kind of know uh, where to expect Cilium to be used, you could describe what typically brings people to, to use Cilium and come to love it. What situations? There's multiple reasons I would start out like from the bottom if you want visibility, right? If you want to know what's going on on the networking layer, awesome. You can run Solim at any scale that you want. You will always get the visibility, like whether it's for troubleshooting, whether it's for audit, whatever. If you have visibility requirements, eBPF gives you massively better and more visibility and Solim can offer that. Then any type of uh, secure or sensitive environment, Solim uh, can go obviously implement just like standard network policy, for example, but then can go beyond that connects very well with things like service mesh, for example, together with Spiffy, Istio, and so on. So that combination can get you uh, to a whole new level of cloud-native security. We have users interested in transparent encryption and use Solim because of that. And then going into the more advanced use cases, large-scale, low-latency, multi-cluster, for example, multi-clouds where, oh, I want to have multiple clusters across multiple cloud providers, or I'm, I'm running a multi-region strategy, whether it's running a data store across multiple regions. All of those are use cases where Solium is doing really, really well. Yeah, I mean, definitely some things are going really well. It's uh, The project just feels like it's kind of everywhere of late. And I think that the GKE announcement was, was um, validating and exciting. And I keep seeing more of that happening. As others are hearing about it as well, any pointers you'd give them for getting involved or following the project? Absolutely. So I think the best starting point is uh, Solium.io, or you can just uh, search Solium in your search engine and Solium.io should be the, the first search result as well. That will have guides, documentation, link to our Slack channel where you can join, ask questions. There's also eBPF.io, which is a the, the new uh, community page for eBPF, the core technology that Solium is based on. Again, with Slack link, documentation, getting started guides, tutorials, if you want to get involved in eBPF and so on. Both of them are great starting points. And then if you want to get like your, your hands on Cilium as quickly as possible, the documentation has getting started guides where you can get a sandbox environment, whether it's Minikube, Kind, or K3S, and basically get your own Kubernetes cluster with Cilium up in two or two or three minutes, and you can start playing around with it. Awesome. Just as we wrap up here, I had to ask you, I remember when I first read about eBPF, I think Brendan Gregg had had called it analogously like eBPF is to Linux kernel or something like JavaScript is to HTML or to kind of web code. And I, I think he, he acknowledged immediately that that was flawed on many levels, but it actually was helpful for me in, in kind of getting the idea that this is a language and it runs in a VM-like environment. How do you feel about this analogy? I think it fits it very well. And if you look at it from a perspective of, look at where HTML was 20 years ago, like what type of websites we looked at, right? And how web technology and your browser enable, enable to, to uh, disrupt applications like Word or big word processing applications. Why did that happen? JavaScript played a huge role. I would say, Instead of just focusing on JavaScript, I would say the programmability, making the browser programmable, 
made a huge difference. It, it required to no longer ship new browser versions all the time. Like if you remember way back, certain websites would not render correctly if you were using like an older browser version. JavaScript and programmability solved almost all of that. And eBPF is very, very similar. It makes the Linux kernel programmable as well. And JavaScript and eBPF share a lot of common ideas about what they unlock, right? I wouldn't go much deeper in comparison, right? I think there's obviously also like not everything is perfect with JavaScript, but if you look at the effect of programmability that JavaScript unlocked, I think we will see or we are seeing something very similar with the Linux kernel where all of a sudden it's no longer constrained by what the Linux kernel can do. You can extend and program the Linux kernel so it's in the hands of an application like Solium to define where the boundaries of the operating system are. And that's very, very exciting. That was not possible before. Awesome. Well, Thomas, thank you for uh, coming on the show. And thank you for your decade-long kind of effort to, to bring better networking and visibility to the Linux kernel. It's, it's changing how people are building applications. And I think we're all the better for it. Yeah, thanks a lot for, thanks a lot for having me on the show, Eric. Have a good day. You too. Bye, Eric. find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.fyi. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor. <laughs>